Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Andy and Red. Let's take down the house lights and start the show. Welcome to The Pestle. Today's episode is brought to you by Central Perk. Looking for a place to shirk your life's responsibilities? Grab an all-day coffee at Central Perk. How's it going, everybody? I'm Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is The Pestle, where we like to talk about movies, review them, um, say whether or not we like them, but also try to f- glean something interesting from the uh, from the filmmakers and maybe an insight or two about life and about movies. And mm. Mostly about movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, movies are life. They indeed are. In, in a lot of ways. Unless I don't want them to be like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, you're no life that I want to emulate. Well, that was life, right? Maybe not that extreme. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But just a heads up: there's spoilers of the show. We're we're going to be doing Sunshine today. If you have not seen Sunshine, I understand it went under the radar, but I highly recommend it. You probably won't even be able to stream it anywhere. You might have to get it off Amazon or something. But which is surprising because the cast in this movie is like pretty large, pretty big, right? There's a lot of heavy hitters. Um, in my opinion, I mean, maybe they're not a listers by Will Smith kind of names, but I think these are just excellent actors and definitely worth it. And I think, I mean, sci-fi, anytime you get good sci-fi, I'm like, Oh yeah. There. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and so and 90% of that is the, uh, is the CGI that they have to do and how believable God. that is. Yeah. And, and Yeah. And yeah, we'll actually talk about that a little bit because of course we will. I started digging into more and more like articles and stuff about this just earlier today. I was kind of went down this rabbit hole of sunshine and I was having a hard time pulling myself out. <laughs> <laughs> this is for the longest time. This is my favorite movie. Um, so today's show, we're going to be talking about the colors of sunshine, uh, some of the foreshadowing that they use, Danny Boyle's style, visual effects, set design, think there's just a lot of really cool stuff that we can look for in this film uh, all right so let's give a quick synopsis of the film and a little breakdown here a team of international astronauts are sent on a dangerous mission to reignite the dying sun with a nuclear fission bomb in 2057 uh, it's directed by danny boyle written by alex garland and it's starring a list of folks here uh, bear with me some of these names uh but killian murphy as kappa Rose Byrne as Cassie, Chris Evans as Mace. He's excellent in this mm-hmm. film. Uh, Cliff Curtis as Cyril. Uh, Michelle Yeoh as Corazon. Hiroyuki Sanada as Kaneda. Benedict Wong as Trey. Troy Garrity as Harvey. Chippo Chung as Icarus. And Mark Strong as Pinbacker. I can do this. Go. Captain, return to airlock. Do you copy? Captain, return to airlock. Do you copy? Copy. Captain, 91% of shield in full sunlight. 
Navigator's not going to make it. It's too far. It's a strong movie. Oh, I, wow. I had a lot of scenes I wanted to pick from, and the one I really wanted to use actually was where they first get to signal and they're debating what to do, mm-hmm. um, because I think that really shows the heart of the film. And maybe I'll still pull it. I just couldn't. I couldn't rip it myself, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't online. Uh, they've done a really good job of scrapping all of the hiding clips. every yeah. piece of this film. <laughs> But I still think that's a really great uh, scene in case I have switched it. The scene we we were listening to in our headphones was the one where Kaneda is fixing the shields and he sends Kappa back so that he can sacrifice himself in order to get the shield lord. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think between that and the signal scene, which is when they first get the, the, the signal, right? You have uh, Harvey in his little green area with all the signal. He's got his head buried in, in radio waves. And he picks up the signal, he brings it to the crew, and he's like, here's what's going on. I found Icarus 1. And then they all have this breakout debate about what to do. And it culminates with Searle, played by Cliff Curtis, who's, I think he's a titan that goes way underappreciated. But he makes the comment uh, after May says, let's put it to a vote. And Searle's like, no, we're a group of scientists. We're going to do what scientists do, and that's make the most informed decision. Because everything about this mission was rooted in, in you know, in science, and we'll get into a little bit of the science of uh, where it breaks down. But I think it's a really good showing of no, this isn't this isn't democracy. This isn't a military run thing. This is a bunch of really intelligent people, and we're going to make an informed decision. And everything we do is going to be guided by scientific principles and. At the peak of which was Mesa's comment where he says, uh, do I need to remind everybody what's at stake? You're right. Our son is dying, and that's the only priority. Yeah. If everybody on Icarus 1 is dead or dies because we miss them, it doesn't matter. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. It's brilliant. Uh, <clears throat> but then, you know, they, they and they decide to make the decision to go to Icarus 1 because... Uh, because it had another the, the payload. payload, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that was a really intelligent decision too. And I think you could kind of second guess it, like, well, why didn't they just try to fire off their payload first? And if that didn't work, then go to the Icarus well, One. Well, you're in space. It's not like you can. Yeah, just there's probably turn limited around. options that they have, whether it's fuel or uh, maybe by the time they would have done all that, they would have been too far away, or who knows? Um, they probably could have come up with a bunch of reasons, but. I can also appreciate cutting to the chase to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. We don't need to drill down and create a 20-minute dialogue about doing a thing if it's not interesting. Right. right. And uh, I do lo- I like that you picked this one just because of the score. It, it's just incredible. The oh whole film, is it's so good. So it was scored by um, John Murphy, who's a, he's a composer, and uh, a band called The Underworld, or just Underworld from the UK and they together 
scored this film and it, it, the score does a lot for this film. So, you know, for example, I wasn't watching that clip that you just played. Right. Right. But I felt it. Yeah. I felt it that, that doom, 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 when that kicks in, it just, it does such a good job of conveying the, the tenseness or the validity and, and importance of what is happening in there, which I just, you know, a film like this has to have a strong score. You know, one of the things that I think Danny Boyle does exceptionally well in this film. And I think in all of his films is find those moments of tension and give them their moment. Like he doesn't gloss over a lot of that. And in this film, everybody's death except one has a very lengthy sequence uh, to it. Kaneda's death, Searle, Harvey, Corzon's Mace's, Kappa's the only person who doesn't have their own death sequence is Cassie. And at that point it's, it didn't make sense to have it because there was too much happening. This was our finale. The climax was rushing, was rushing right towards us. And it was now or never, because if we were for focusing too much on that, we suddenly get caught up in, well, what's pinbacker doing? Is he catching up to Kappa now? Because it, it destroys the pacing and it makes your mind wander and, tension started rising where you don't really want tension. Cause at that point cap has escaped him. He's, he's able to get to his objective now. Um, and so I can understand why he left her out, but the music and every one of those scenes, Corazon basically gets two death scenes in a sense because she gets stabbed in the back. And then there's this little moment of relief tension, uh, as Kappa is making his way towards the, the, the dock or, you know, getting out, or right before he blows the, the hatch and we cut back to Corazon and you can see she found, uh, she had found that little green seed, right? Yeah. Seedling. And she was holding it, you know, and dying and, or even dead or at dead. that point. Yeah. Um, but it also just re reemphasized the importance of their mission. Right. Yeah. Cause plants photosynthesis, That's, right. And well, it just, that it's a little piece of earth. It's yeah. just a little reminder of like, this is the whole reason, you know, like, yeah, yeah I'd never thought the, about it that way, I, but I think the other way you can see it is she wanted to die with a piece of earth in her hands too, oh yeah, right? Yeah, like this absolutely. is home. This is mm-hmm. the closest I can get to home. Yep. It's not just that I love plants, but this is earth. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. She wanted that job, you know, that, that was her job to take care of all that stuff. So not, so her, the reason why she was, I feel like why she was so upset about, all the plants being being destroyed and burned was that it it was almost like her mission failed at that mm. moment like like yes the main mission is is the sun right. and you know uh to save the earth obviously and she knew that but that was her earth you know that's a great point and then too um it's interesting just talking about certain scenes just flushes out all kinds of thoughts. But it's interesting that the sun is the reason those plants died. It's the exact inverse of what's happening on Earth, right? The sun isn't, uh, the Earth isn't getting enough sun to keep its plants alive. And meanwhile, the sun destroyed her plants. And so at the same, the, the root of it's the same thing. The sun is causing issues. Um, and for her, like you said, it destroyed her one passion or her, her soul being on the, on the ship. There's a lot of That's layers awesome. to this. One thing I really loved is how it opens. Uh, they take the Fox intro, right? The facade of it, 20th Century Fox, 
dun, 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 right, yeah. and we dolly over and start looking behind the Fox logo and that turns into the sun. The sun. And then as we keep pushing in, it turns into the Icarus's uh, payload shield that's protecting everyone. And we yeah. turn from that and to see the ship in darkness in darkness. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, that first shot is the only thing really grounding us to earth uh, for most of the movie. I mean, at the very end we get back to earth and then we have the sunroom moment uh, with mace. Mm-hmm. But other than that, the openings, that's all we get. And we get our first glimpse of the color uh, that's at stake here and all the significance because the, Orange, yellow, golds, those are all sun colors. And those are very powerful colors. We don't ever really ever see those outside of the context of the sun. We see them on, you know, cooking items. It's a food source. Like the oil is kind of this yellow gold color. And I think the top of like a sriracha (laughs) bottle has like a yellow on it. And then other than that, it's the sunroom, which is the first room we get to see. Sorrel is sitting in the room. And... We also get the power of the sun. So while they're introducing the colors, they bring in all the sound, right? Those sound effects are just loud and grating. You get a full-on power of the sun uh, pounding the shield. And we also get to hear that this is 3.1% of the the sun's power. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if that's scientific. I know, right? I I I mean, probably. It sounds reasonable, right? I I mean, they're very close to the sun, so I can only imagine... (laughs) And uh, then I do wonder what that shield was made of. I know because that's it's not that far in the future. Like what is this right. stuff that they made the shield out of? That's true because if it can't just be pure gold, that's too meltable. Right. right? Yeah. No, it's too no. soft. Yeah. That's a good question. If anybody knows. <laughs> what is this supposed yeah, to be? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. But don't to know, me, but. or maybe it's not made of anything. It's just reflectivity or, reflectivity. I mean, it's made of something, but, yeah, but um, yeah. Maybe it could be some kind of highly tempered steel or something, yeah, and it's yeah. just reflecting gold. Sure, sure. Maybe. <laughs> sure, that sounds good. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. So we see it in the fires. Um, then other than that, lighting-wise, or color-wise, uh, blue is not the other big one. The lighting of the ship's exterior and the interior, when we pass over that shield, all we see are the blue, of, right. which it makes sense color-wise because... Uh, from talking to Alyssa, I'm not a color guy. Color is like the worst thing I can bring to a, <laughs> a set. Like yeah. I, I try to study it and I, I want to bring some ideas to it, but execution wise, I need help. I'm going to ask for opinions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but talking to Alyssa, one of our short films, I was like, yeah, I was thinking of having, you know, uh, an orange and yellow motif. And she's like, oh, that makes sense because, uh, or orange and blue, because those are opposites on the color spectrum. Like those uh, complement each other. So, if you have a yellow light and you're in you know pitch blackness and you shine it at a, a statue in the dark, the other side of that face is going to be blue. That's just the way I guess color works. Wow, I've never tested it. I mean, it makes sense. I guess like sure, it's pretty cool the way that kind of stuff works. And so it makes sense that the opposite of our natural energy source, everything else is blue. Everything man-made is blue. Yeah. There's also a lot of textural stuff that I think goes with that. And there's a lot of straight lines that goes with the ship. Um, a lot of man-made structures, right? You don't get straight lines in nature. Yeah. Whereas that Canada scene that we just played, as it's sweeping over the shield, it's like this huge curve of wall. It's not a straight line. It's just huge, beautiful, curving movement, kind of flushing over Canada and washing him away. And so I feel like 
they're doing a lot between textures and colors to play nature versus man, um, even inside the bomb, right? It's squares and cubic and uh, very blue when the when the lights start to to tinkle on. Yeah, um, and interesting. Yeah, what other colors are are in this that you notice? I mean, green. The there's a green screen video room as he's sending out the message. Right, right. Um, and in the plant room. And in the plant room. That's right. Uh, the gardens. The Harvey's uh, space music, as Mace calls it, um, whenever he discovers the signal, is it's all green. That he's got his. He's literally dipped his head into these lighting sound waves um which is kind of oh yeah that's right yeah yeah and so i feel like maybe it's starting to kind of represent home it's all the it's everything we have back home right the garden yeah um the green screen is a message back to home the communications is a is their only mechanism communicating with earth uh so green seems to play an important role with establishing home contact we see it in the in the earth room as they call it we get into the to the forest right and, yeah mm-hmm. uh, which mace doesn't like i was with mace on that like he he's like i want the waves <laughs> that makes me feel peaceful <laughs> yeah same here man i could sit there and sit at the beach and watch waves crash yeah that's the business the other other color that's big and i don't think there's any other important colors outside of these four is red which is kind of easy it's emergency alert it's the uh, lighting in their helmet. If you're in there, right, that's probably bad business. Oh, right, yeah. Um, but the outside of, of the, the suit itself is gold, which is, you know, still emblematic of exposure to the sun. Um, and the comm tower itself, I think, might have been red towards, towards the end. It's after a certain moment, though, because at the beginning, everything is blue. Then after the signal and right before those comms towers go out, they become red. Yeah. Uh, they have a little red beacon on there. Oh yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Right. And I loved those suits. Dude. They're so cool. I mean, not super functional. Like right. you wouldn't want to jump in one. They're kind of like, like those deep sea diver, <laughs> yeah. those old school DC deep sea diver things. Okay. With the, yeah. Don't with the, step. the, the big, huge round heads. <laughs> yeah. 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 They but were pretty intense, design. but it's beautiful. It, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's so functional. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not, not functional, but I mean like they serve their purpose. They serve their purpose. Yeah. Right. To block you and, uh, to give you everything I guess you need to survive in space. Yeah. But what the, one of the interesting things in the behind the scenes that if you get a chance to watch this on a DVD, listen to the, uh, the commentary because Danny Boyle talks about the, the difficulty of designing a helmet <laughs> Because he's like, you feel like you're in the room with Kubrick and Ridley Scott, and they're all judging you. <laughs> because, I mean, that's, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey and yeah, right. Alien. And he's just like, I, you can't not reference those things. He's like, I tried to create something new and original. But for everything we were trying to accomplish, getting a, a cam- camera inside the helmet, like you needed the space. And it just didn't make sense to, to build something that if you were trying to ground this in reality – you probably were going to want to bulk it out. And yeah. that's just what he ended up with. I just think it's funny, you know, to try to be creating something. I can't imagine creating something and feeling like I'm being watched by, you know, two of the yeah. masters of the craft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it was beautiful. That, that's great. What else in the um, behind the scenes stuff that oh my God. St- jumped out to you? Um, cause that's the kind of stuff that I love. I love hearing from the director, hearing from the actors. 
So Danny Boyle is my favorite director. I should make sure I say because, he is. He's your yeah, favorite. Yeah, he okay. is my favorite. I know people would probably think Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Um, but I like Danny Boyle for a lot of reasons. To me, he's the antithesis of a David Fincher, which I still love David Fincher. That was going to be who I thought. Yeah. Was oh, really? going to be. That's fair. If it wasn't Nolan, I thought it would be Fincher. <laughs> because their, their styles are so mm-hmm. radically different. Danny Boyle is much more immersive, and he's trying to make you empathize with your characters. And so all his lighting choices, all his camera angles are driven to either get an emotion out of you or to make you connect with what's happening. Whereas Fincher is much more sterile. He's, he's a fly on the wall. He's observing. You're passive in this experience. You're not engaged with it. And so I love Danny Boyle for that, but also the crazy amount of breadth of his work just makes me like so jealous because he's done dramas. Uh, if you think of the beach, uh, shallow grave, slumdog millionaire, of course, uh, mm. you know, Especially, you know, Slumdog, I think it's just an amazing movie. But he also has done horror with 28 Days Later. He's done sci-fi with this. He's done thrillers. I mean, there's most directors kind of get pigeonholed. And he's just kind of like, nah, bump that. I'm going to do whatever I want. And I'm going to take my style with me everywhere and adjust accordingly. Uh, he's a really big fan. So his history is in theater. And I think it really shows through in this film particularly because for prep, and this goes back to your question, he decided if everyone's going to be in this ship, and at this point they've been traveling in space together for 16 months, there's a certain level of comfort and tedium and frustration that everyone's going to have with each other. And in order to help fast forward to that feeling, I believe, and I haven't watched the behind the scenes in like, five years or something like that. But he had everyone live together for like a month, like in, a, in one small apartment <laughs> in order to, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. That's how he was like, I'm going to kill Murphy and Chris Evans living together for a month. <sighs> so those fights felt pretty real. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's just amazing. It's, it speaks so highly of his vision and the actor's commitment. That's a hefty commitment. Yeah, it is. And, and I feel like it shows up really well on screen because it's such a subtle thing that as a director, you might be tempted to say, you know what, I'm just, I know what I want. I'm just going to coach them through everything that I want when we get on set. But there's faster things to get to, because if you can establish that rapport with everybody, then you're not wasting takes trying to get what you want. Instead, you're getting variety. You're getting to use a lot more in post. And so I think it saves your film in a lot of ways. But it also, I mean, that that rapport, you just, you're not going to get it as well as any other way other than spending 16 months <laughs> in space together. I just think that's an incredible vision. And yeah. It's, I love amazing. that kind of stuff. That's, that's the, that's the kind of stuff I want to know. Right. And yeah. the, the, uh, the set design was outstanding. They built out most of the ship, like the hallways, the, and I want to say he even connected it all these big set pieces together in one big studio so that you could walk down the length of the ship. Oh my God. And it's wow. Just That's incredible. Awesome. And I feel like he uses it. Even some of the, the smaller things as he's transitioning between one big scene to another, he uses yeah. like the hallway. Like we're not, we're not necessarily even going to cut to 
the wide of the ship from the outside. Right. We're going to cut to the inside and a little transition machine with the hallway. And that's just a pass, passage of time. Yeah. Which is one of those. Oh, yeah. He does that. Right. That's right. I, I did notice that. But it's just kind of in there. Uh, it's just a great and way I, to use your set. And it, it's, it, it, you know, we speak to, uh, we speak about this a lot, I, I feel like, but it's a really great way of like, of respecting your audience and, you know, not explaining everything just like here's the story and we're gonna we're gonna cut from here and we're gonna go over here and and keep up yeah you'll get it you'll get it you'll get it but and if you don't get it it's okay watch it again and you'll get it that's no i think that's so dead on just because at the end of at the beginning of every scene uh you kind of start with this wait what are we doing especially towards the beginning you have a lot of these what's going on right now and that's huge. That's that goes right to what you're talking about with being condescending to your audience. Yeah. Because if you can make the audience ask that question and have the answer by the end of that scene without saying, "Oh, this is Cyril. He likes to just sit in front of the sun and freak <laughs> out." Right? Yeah. That's a good thing because you're you're starting to in, intonate, you know, what these characters are about, what's in their heart, and what's important to them. Even that scene with uh, Kaneda. So. You go from that opening, right, with Searle taking in the sun. We cut to them at dinner, and they're eating, they're cooking, they're kind of conversing, and Searle's talking about the the sun and how amazing it is. But this team, Kaneda, I think is so incredible because the next time we see Kaneda, maybe it's not the next time, but maybe the time after that, I want to, one of the next times we see Kaneda, he's in the sunroom. And he's sitting yeah. there seeing, seeing what Searle was talking about. And it may not even necessarily be that he believed Searle, but I think he was feeling the heartbeat of, of his ship. He's getting the tone. He's getting the pace. And so when we get to that outside moment when Kaneda sacrifices his life, we see that he is incredibly objective, as everyone on this ship should be. Now, there's only really one person throughout this film that is an objective, which is Harvey, because he gets crazy later on. Yeah. His fight to survive just kicks in. Um, but everyone else on the ship is pretty good about being objective and what's most important. And Kaneda, sent there with his life on the line, calmly listens to everybody while he's being exposed to the sun and makes a rational decision. He's like, nope, yep. This has to be done. Here we go. Yeah. And they've subtly set it up. And it goes back to what you said about they didn't condescend at any point in the film. So when, I think it's Searle, when, mm-hmm. Searle, sa- Searle, when Searle says, what do you see to Kaneda? Kaneda doesn't answer him. What do, you, he, what do you think he wants the answer to be? Do you think he has like an idea? Like, because he's longing for something. When he's staring at the sun, when he's in the sunroom, he's, there's you know, there's this connection that he has with, with either the sun itself or the power it gives off. I don't know, but when he's reaching out and he's, he's trying to get an answer, it's almost like, you know, if someone, if someone dies and then comes back and the first question you want to ask is, what did you see? Like, um, I just had like, 10 thoughts while you were asking that question <laughs> and it was rapid fire. Oh no. Um, Do we lose all of them? No, no, no. I okay. think I got them. So okay, let's go. I think it's interesting that he doesn't answer first of all, because maybe sitting in that sunroom prior, he's like, 
Searle is losing his grip on reality just a little bit, which isn't good for a psych officer. Um, right. <laughs> that's his only job. Right. On those yeah, ships, exactly. Is to keep everyone's, you know, crap together. Yeah. And so maybe he doesn't answer him because of that. But to your other question uh, of what is he wanting to hear? That's where I, you can debate whether this is intentional or unintentional uh, of this film, because I think it goes right to the heart of that, which is, is this film making a commentary about God? Now, I think on a very light way, it could be, um, and this would be the unintentional side would be pinbacker, right? Either loses his mind or fools everybody and makes his way all the way out there to sabotage the ship. And then at the, but at his heart the whole time, he was really just a a religious, you know, fervent nut or space kind of screwed with his head. And maybe the sun has a power of its own. And as he got closer to the sun, the, he started seeing things and connecting to this power because if you take a macro view of this film and you insert the sun represents God, then what we're saying is man builds a bomb to Mm -hmm. go and destroy and replace God, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. I personally don't really have a dog in that hunt. And I mean that literally because I'm agnostic. (laughs) So I don't believe one way or the other. Um, But I find it really interesting, you know, just philosophically uh, to discuss. And so unintentionally, you'd be saying, wow, they and I think this happens. If you look at certain books like Hemingway, The Old Man in the Sea, uh, people take away all these literary devices from it. And they say, wow, look at this theme that you can insert onto this story. And Hemingway maintained that he didn't—he wasn't looking to create any of these themes. He just wrote a story, and he told the story as true as he could. This is the honest version of the story of a man wrestling with, you know, a marlin or whatever the the fish was. And people take what they want out of that. If you build it correctly, people will find interesting themes out of that. Um, now you can say whether or not he actually meant that. I don't know. But that's the argument. And so I think you can make that similar argument in, in that they pose the question, the sun is dying. How would mankind go about saving itself? But the intentional version would be man has created enough science that God is losing its place. But God is fighting back. Religion is fighting back against science. And this wasn't even really very far into the whole climate debate. Uh, climate change debate. So, because if you think this was written, this was shot in like 2005 um, and not released yeah, until it came like out in 07? 07, yeah. Um, and so this was still way early in the whole debate of that. But even if you wanted to say, well, this is debating that, well, no, because then it's still blame the, the blame at the sun. It's not saying this is a man-made thing, but it's a man-made solution. So I don't think you can really crucially insert climate change debate into this film. But what you can say is if they're intentional about it, religion has outserved its purpose. And now man is creating something that's going to sustain itself further. Um, or and, just, or just reli- man is changing the religion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you, if it really comes down to it, right. 
God is the religion because mm-hmm. the religion doesn't change ex- who God really is. Right. God is God. Yeah. It's just his, our relationship with whatever that is. Right. So if you change the religion, then you technically change the definition of, of God. Yeah. Right. I That's mean, at least true. to those people. Right. Right. right? Yep. So maybe that, because it's very interesting, yeah. um, the, you know, the, your suggestion of that, because that, means then that that religion can change which we know you know throughout throughout history like the catholic church has changed stuff Mm -hmm. um uh, there's new religions that have come up and and they all are important to people maybe in an age where where so many people are searching for something but not everybody identifies with one thing I don't know. I lost my thought. <laughs> yeah, I know. It gets, it gets really wound up pretty quick. And so I think that would be one argument is Searle is wanting to hear about the face of God. Yeah. He's wanting to hear an answer um, because the more he s- sits in sun gazes. <laughs> <laughs> well, for all of you sun gazers out there. Yeah. Um, it's dangerous. Don't do it. Please don't do that. Do not go out and stare at the sun. It's, There's so much wrong with that. I can't even, I can't even start. <laughs> we're, we're laughing here because we have a friend that is a, an avid, avid sun gazer who during the eclipse decided to stare at the sun for the entire time. Pretty much. That's yeah. so frightening. Just crazy. Just I mean, crazy. I've seen love you, Sean, but my God, <laughs> I've seen, there's there's posts and I'll find the link and I'll put it put it in the uh, the show notes at the pestlepodcast.com. There's shots of lens rentals, a lens renting website got back a bunch of lenses that were damaged from the sun from the eclipse. People were pointing <laughs> it and it melted metal. <laughs> and, and yet your eyes are supposed to be okay. Probably not. Garbage. Yeah. And so it is interesting. I, I think there's a lot that you know goes into that, whether you're writing it, which this writer is my favorite screenwriter, Alex Garland. I mean, largely because of this film, but he's done... What else has he done? Uh, recently, he did Ex Machina, oh, which I think is... Fantastic. An incredible film. Yeah. One of the best original sci-fi films of the last 10 years. And it says so much about what I think about artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. but... Incredible film and other references to God in there too. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's probably maybe some intention with Alex, maybe not so much with Danny Boyle. Mm -hmm. And I read the, gosh, I read the script. I actually bought the script in book form. (laughs) Wow. You're obsessed. I really am. I love this film. I love sci-fi and it's one of those genres that, I fear I'll never get to really tackle the way I want. Yeah. Um, because like you said at the, the beginning, man, it's the budget can be difficult. This is a $40 million film. And because of how disciplined they were in creating it, they were able to squeeze every penny out of it. But the, the thinking is usually that sci-fi takes, you know, hundred million dollars to make properly. Um, and it doesn't have to be for sure, but the scope that he was doing in this film, I think it's incredible because they kept a lot of it very practical. Um, I mean, there's a hefty amount of CG, don't get me wrong, uh, between green screens and the space shots, but they seem to also work really hard at what can we do in camera? 
uh, and I was reading an article that I'll I'll track down and post that they were saying there's no reason as Searle is getting enveloped by the sun. We don't have to do that digitally. Let's blow dust all over them. And that begins to get the point across, you know, like let's do the practical things because then not only are you saving money, but you're getting a, a real reaction out of your actor because he's got something physically to play against. Now, one of the hallmarks, I think of some of the bad acting from the star Wars prequels was there's so much CG. What are, What's Natalie Portman supposed to play against? Yeah. Don't tell me she's a bad actress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's incredible. Yeah. And if she's struggling to maybe pull out some of the human performance, it's going to be the director and maybe, you know, what she's giving, being given to work with. And so I think they worked so hard to do that. There's other stuff that they did with the practical effects. When we see Pinbacker, that's all in camera. Those aren't post effects. Everything you're seeing with a blurry distortion of Pinbacker is is happening through lens whacking, I think, um, or just a lens, a lens addition that they're helping to, to distort. Can you explain what lens whacking? So lens whacking, and I don't know that they did this exactly, but lens whacking the way I've done it is where you're detaching the lens from the camera itself. And now you're just kind of hovering it around the sensor so that the focal distance isn't even across the sensor. Because the lens, right, as it's mounted on, it's very solidly giving you the same exact flat. The front of the lens is flat to the flat of the sensor at the back. Mm -hmm. But if you, but because it's mounted, you can't twist it. You can't uh, move it from side to side. Like if you were to angle it, oh, I'm going to just pinwheel to the left and pinwheel to the right, you know, bracing the, the lens on one side and then to the other, like you can create these weird wavy distortions, um, naturally. Now they probably had a little bit more sophisticated version of that where maybe you hook it up to a bellows so that it's still mounted, but it's not fixed in place. Hmm. And now we can start to create a distortion or maybe they just had some other element, some other focal element to help create that distortion. And you can also let a little light in the side. Mm -hmm. Get some streaking well. right, yeah. uh, and just plays with the exposure a little bit. And that's something you would test in pre-production for sure. But yeah, he did stuff like that. I love the macro shots of the eye. Whenever we start to see whether it's Canada or Searle, I think those are largely the only two we get to see their, their, the, a macro shot of their eye and a macro is just a super, super close up to where something tiny think an ant is filling up the entire frame, right? That's, that's a very tiny ant, but a very big frame. And so you use this very special lens that can get, can pull focus at a very short distance. And that, that helps you to get a f in focus shot of a very tiny object. It's beautiful stuff. And Danny Boyle loves to do that kind of stuff. He loves to use the Standard angles, oh, we're going to go standard. And then he's going to do these Dutch angles where he just turns everything to the side. Suddenly, your your horizon is no longer flat. It's like tilted. And that adds drama um, because he just loves these frenetic angles to accent uh, a moment like the, the Kappa and the Mace fight at the beginning. It's a very low angle erratic movement it's dutch it's uh on it it's tilted a little bit off the axis and so it just creates this frenetic energy one scene so the uh the signal scene where they're having that discussion everything ends up being pinned on kappa at the end when 
uh, Kaneda steps in. And he's like, yeah, the yeah. most informed person to make this this decision is Kappa. And then we cut to Kappa, which up until that point, I don't think we see him a single time in that scene until we cut to just behind him where he's large in the front and the rest of the crew is in the back because he's so important. And he just uses these very simple kind of one-on-one elements, but he uses them to great effect because of the way he saves them up. He doesn't just spray them out and like every shot is special or else no shot is special. And his answer is perfect. Every time. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's up to you. Shit. Humanity. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a really immersive thing. The visor views, right? Uh, we're inside the helmet. We're in watching helmet. Cassie strap him in. Uh, we have this wide angle in black, this tiny section of blue flashlight flickering as characters are running when they're on Icarus 1. We have these short, like, two or three second shots of it's black, but we see a flashlight pumping in the distance. And he uses all these things to constantly engage uh, the audience. Like the uh, when they're on Icarus 1 and they're kind of checking out everything, and Searle is testing out the water. And it's just this loud. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's very loud, but it's, you're like, what's happening? Oh, it's just water hitting the, the basin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All these clever things that he's doing. And even as uh, Mace is dying, he doesn't do a dolly out. I think that would have been the easiest thing to do when Mace is submerged and he, he, he's saved as much of the ship as he can. He's trying to crawl out. He can't. But instead of slowly dollying away, he uses this handheld shot and they back out. And it's just kind of this wavy, dreamy. I don't think it's a beautiful shot, but it's effective at what it's doing, which is to immerse us and connect us a little bit more with with the moment. Yeah. And I think I love that that's more important than making something beautiful. I And I, I love Chris Evans in this film, which is great because I don't. I'm not crazy about Chris Evans. Uh, I don't think he's a bad actor. Mm. I just think uh, there it hasn't been a good movie for his style of acting. And I'm counting Captain America. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's big in that film and and everything. But he's it's almost like he's like too gung ho America in that. In this, he's gung ho. In Sunshine, he is he is a gung ho by the book by the rules kind of kind of uh almost like a a marine you know but it's it's much more real i feel like than in in something like captain america or something he's very he he's the guy he's the leader yeah that's true i mean he's the entire time even before he's the captain right he's the captain he's the one that makes the decision to let um uh searle die um and to to let the the computer uh reorient the mm-hmm. the the ship um he, and he's the one that makes the decisions throughout the whole movie and it's it's just it's all based off of like factual whatever's going to get the mission to complete the mission successfully no that's a really good point um because he's a pilot I, him and Cassie are the pilots now that you say that there's this moment where mace where everything's turning, right? They're trying to give them a little light or, sh- or shade to fix the, the shield. And you start hearing these noises. And Mace says to Corazon, who's, you know, uh, 
she probably serves multiple functions, but she's the, the gardener um, is the way I've been right. thinking about her. And he, he tells her the noise is metal expanding and contracting. She just kind of rolls her eyes at him. She's like, I know what it is, Flyboy. <laughs> it's like, stop being, a, stop being that guy for five yeah, minutes. <laughs> right, exactly. Which is hilarious because it's a, it's a way to tell the audience what that is. Yeah. Even, even though we probably didn't really need it, it's still cool to hear that that's what that is. Yep. But then being told, we're not stupid. Yeah. We get it. You don't have to do that. And then the rest of the movie... We don't really get that. That's you know? so good. Yeah. I hadn't awesome. even thought about it that way, man. Yeah. That's so and important. and the way he dies is perfect. He saves he saves the ship. He saves the whole mission pretty much, you know. He's by, true to his uh his ethos. Yeah. until uh, the end, you mm-hmm. know. Um uh so anyway, I, I really buy him in this film is um and which is funny because I buy him after not buying him in other films since. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? And I think too, I agree like Captain America, whether it's the way he's playing it or the character himself, he's just kind of flat. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's a very simple character. He's smile. He's a poster boy and he acts like a poster boy. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know that I've seen him in a lot of other films. I mean, Fantastic Four is not a good movie. Either one of them really, but the first one particularly is bad. I mean, he's okay in that. He's, he's the only quote-unquote good thing um well an- another good one is snowpiercer snowpiercer but you know what i really love him in second to this even is scott pilgrim what was he he's he's one of the seven x's oh my god he because <laughs> he's so radically different yes oh man <laughs> we need to do that film we will definitely be doing that oh okay good good <laughs> And so, yeah, I think he's amazing. Cliff Curtis is amazing. I mean, everyone here is just A-list. But you know my favorite actor in here, uh, maybe second to, to Chris Evans. It, but the more I've watched this film, the more I've really loved Rose Byrne. She really embodies the tedium of the ship itself. Like when Kappa and Mace fight at the beginning, she just kind of rolls her eyes and says, uh, Captain, you need to get down to the comms room. There's an outbreak of manliness. Like she's just so over so all over of it. it. Yeah. yeah. But then, it's been a year and a half. Yeah. yeah. Then there's also that moment though, where they're, they're voting on whether or not to kill Trey who's suicidal already. Oh, right. Yeah. And they have, they don't know he's killed himself already, but they're, they're weighing on it. And I just feel the weight of that decision because she's not stopping them but she's not helping them. She's not going to give them the clearance of their conscience. And there's just so much subtlety and nuance throughout her performance that I think she, yeah, I think she's really incredible. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah, I you, love you can, you can feel her like um, it's, she, it breaks her a little bit because she knows what she needs to choose, but she can't vocalize it because then that would be accepting the fact that she's killing someone even though she knows that it has to happen. Um, so, but she th- can't stop them because that would mean that she's killing everyone. Right. Right. So including earth. Exactly. And so she is definitely <laughs> caught between that's a catch 22 in her principles. Yeah. Because how do you weigh that? I mean, it should be an easy way. I, 
I wouldn't. I mean, that. yeah. <laughs> I, was some, about, I was about to say, yeah, you're about it's to say, easy, oh, I'll do it. Like, I'll do it. Yeah. What yeah, if it was me and we were yeah. 18, you know, months together? Uh, I don't know if we were 18 months together. Maybe we'd be it, ready it should, to. You <laughs> might be ready to kill me. Um, There's some amazing foreshadowing going here too, because in that moment they talk about. Uh, Kappa says, uh, I see the same thing that happened on Icarus is Icarus one is happening here. Oh, right. You know, and you can feel the breakdown because that's really foreshadowing pinbacker, uh, later on. Cause the same thing is happening. But even before that they're on the bomb and they're testing the bomb and it's Kappa and Cassie and Cassie asks them, you know, are you scared Kappa? And he oh, starts right. describing how the bomb's going to function. And he's like, after I, switch the ignition on one light will flicker on and then another it'll split in two and then those will split into four and so on and then he tells her no i'm not scared and she says i am and that shot of her saying i am we pan down to a reflection of her face in the in the window and it's distorted and blurred just like pinbacker oh. is later on yeah and it's the most beautiful, subtle foreshadowing um, because there's no reason you would connect that to anything meaningful. Yeah, I mean, you don't know Pinbacker exists even right. at that point. And so, obviously, later on, that, that becomes Pinbacker. And then uh, there's also a great moment where Searle is strapping in Kappa as he's saying his farewell, right? He's about to get left on Icarus 1 in order to open up the hatch to eject them back into Icarus 2. And Searle is talking to Kappa, and he says, hey, Kappa, we're only Stardust. And he closes his helmet, and that's his decision to die, right? He's saying, don't worry about it. But it's also a comment about he's returning to his origin because the son is literally about to take his life and turn him back into dust. And so he is literally about to become Stardust. And But we've always referenced... You know, humanity, that's kind of a phrase that we've been kicking around for a while, uh, is that, you know, we're only stardust. Because at the end of the day, our our galaxy, or not our galaxy, our solar system is largely born out of our sun. And the only things that aren't are like comets (laughs) that come from outside of our solar system. But everything else, we humans, come from the sun, if you're into the science. Yeah. (laughs) Which I am. Yeah. (laughs) But... I think that's a beautiful image, you know, that he's not only accepting it, but it's it's something that maybe he's even looking for. I was to. just going to say he's longing for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love the uh, the setups that they do too. When they get fired out of, out of the Icarus One, right? You have that pressurized door that opens up to to catapult them back to Icarus Two. Mm-hmm. Well, that becomes the the method that he uses to open up Icarus two towards the end when pinbacker locks him into the, uh, into the hatch. He's like, Mace, I don't I can't open this door. And Mace is like, man, F you figure it out. I'm dying here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to save you. Yeah. <laughs> don't make me solve all your problems. Know, bro. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he does, he's like, okay, I'm a freaking physicist. Yeah. Let's figure this out. And what he learned just previously, I feel like became the inspiration. Like, Oh, yeah, I can, I can do this. Um, so he drills a hole in one hatch and then blows the other hatch, creating the suction that ultimately vacates the ship that allows him in his suit to make his way back to ignite the bomb. It was so brilliant, that, that whole, 
all of that and and even the the cool um when they were co- when they had to shoot from Icarus 1 back to Icarus 2 uh just from opening the hatch and they only had one spacesuit just wrapping themselves in insulation yeah and, and i mean it makes me makes me think like would that work I want to go talk to a scientist and find out if that's real. I mean, I'm sure that they probably did research and like, mm-hmm. you know, made sure that that was real. But I, man, and then the guts you have to have to do something like that. And what I love about that scene is that okay, Harvey gets lost, right, and he shatters on his own comms tower. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of poetic that is justice funny. for you, <laughs> um, but. Also love that uh, they get back in right, and like you said, Mace is wrapped in the whatever that foil is, um, and he's just dying. Right, frostbites all over his fingers, and they're warming him up. Cassie and Corazon as best, best as they can. They're 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 warming him up, and then you cut to Kappa opens his mask up, and he's all sweaty. <laughs> And Corazon's like, are you okay, Kappa? It's like, bro, he's been in the space suit. He's, <laughs> he's okay. I was in outer space yeah. without a suit. You might want to tend to me. Yeah, I think he's the guy. I you think he's about. okay. This guy's okay. It just makes you think of Dumb and Dumber. He's like, <laughs> my hands are getting all sweaty. Yeah. You had an extra pair of gloves this whole time. We won't go in. Yeah. We just start quoting Dumb and Dumber for the next hour easily. <laughs> But I love that. I love how many tiny little payoffs that they have having set them up. Yeah. And I mean, I could probably. And, and I would, I would say like after, you know, watching this movie, the next time I watch it, I'll have several scenes to look forward to. Like, oh man, I can't wait for that, that, you know, jettison scene where they, they go from Wickers one to two. I can't wait for the, um, when we first, you know, see, Pinbacker, I can't wait for the explosion. I can't wait for, you know, there's all these like mo- little moments where, um, where you kind of look forward to it now, you know, like those payoffs you were saying. A hundred percent. Because what I think, and it kind of goes back to the tension moments that we were talking about earlier. I think Danny Boyle is the most simple thing in the world to do as a filmmaker. So look at your script and circle the important moments. Say emotionally, what's important? Okay. When every person dies, that's important. I'm going to circle that. I'm going to say, oh, the fifth crew member? That's an important moment. I'm going to circle that. Uh, pushing the button whenever you know he's, whether igniting the bomb or uh, blowing the hatch, that's an important moment. The slow pan where the, uh, the ignition is a countdown, uh, start, begins a countdown, that's important. I'm going to circle that. Like jumping to the payload, that's important. What are all the most important emotional pulling moments everything else doesn't get the the glory those moments get all the glory let me talk to my composer let me talk to my sound designer and let's figure out how we can tie in as well as we can the themes and the emotions and the arcs of this film into those moments because now we can say okay timing wise let's build out an extra 45 seconds, 60 seconds for this moment. And that adds up to maybe an extra 10 minutes on your film. Whereas maybe this is a 90 page movie without those extra emotional beats, but let's build in those moments so that we can flush out the flesh out the score. We can figure out, you know, 
camera angles. What do we want shot list wise to build into this scene? What do we want to communicate to our actors? And so when it, I love the who's the fifth crew member moment because he's sitting in the bomb room talking to Icarus. Oh my god, that's that it that scene is terrifying. That just the thought of that, that is just terrifying. You're in space, like and there's an extra person all of a sudden after a year and a half of being right. on the ship. Like that's terrifying, right? Absolutely. Because this film switches from a pure sci-fi to a, a horror film. Yeah. And I love that about this film. That's probably the number one thing that I loved about it walking out was that I got two of my favorite genres in one go. Yeah. Uh, because it does it deftly. And I think some purists got annoyed by it, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. And that moment, I think I probably would have rushed it. I probably would have rushed that moment because to me, realistically, I'm like, Icarus, there's only, there's only four. Negative Kappa, there's five. Well, who's the fifth crew member? Instead, what he does as he takes that moment, as dawning begins to realize and come across Kappa's face, and he has this music play, and he has this eerie silence that surrounds it before he finally asks, who's the fifth crew member? Unknown. And then, it, then it's on. He's like, where is the fifth crew member? Yeah. In the observatory. So, so the takeaway, the takeaway is, is all you filmmakers out there, Find those moments that you want to capitalize that that define your film. Yes, right. The defining moments of your film, especially, and there might be a few others as well that you just want to highlight. But especially the the defining moments, and take your time in those, whatever that might mean. Maybe it's a pause. Maybe it's an extra word here or there. Maybe it's a lighting. Maybe it's a change. look or a yeah. lighting. Yeah, lighting change or an angle or a cut or something like that. Um, or maybe it's nothing and it's just silence and, and sit on those and allow those to develop because the, it creates tension. And even in, even in comedy, you need mm-hmm. tension in every yeah. kind of genre. You need tension, Absolutely. You know? uh, tension and release, tension and release, yep. uh, you know, always, I mean, mm-hmm. a good joke, there's, there's tension because you want to know what the answer is. Yep. Right. Yeah. yeah that's true. And you have you, the longer you have to wait, Maybe the funnier it is, or maybe the worse it is. <laughs> honestly, um, uh, but yeah, okay, that's a, that's a great takeaway from this. Actually, I love that, and I feel like he he's done that very consistently, you know, with all of his films. But it's really easy to see in this film because of how isolated we are from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I think it's easy to lose some of those tension moments uh, against the backdrop of real world settings where everything is happening all the time. Yeah. Really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But to go back to the soundtrack, man, I, so incredible, absolutely incredible. But I got so frustrated after this came out that so many movies started using the soundtrack. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) They just ripped it, ripped it straight off and their trailers sometimes in the films themselves. And there's infinite music to be made. Go make new music or use the soundtrack. Right. You know, don't use, don't repurpose a score, bro. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so, you know, we've already done this film, but it, uh, interstellar mm. is a great example God. of an amazing soundtrack that you'd never heard before. It, it was, it was analog and digital all at the same time. 
uh, I mean, a little bit like a uh, social network, but not as digital. So it, it was just a little more futuristic than most soundtracks yeah. are, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it had the tension. <sighs> My God. Plenty of it. Plenty. And so it can be done. The more I think you just work with and pick the right people to work with, because it's, don't just have a, a beautiful soundtrack, have it be core to your film, yeah. because that's the best way you're going to be able to connect with your audience. I think music is far more powerful than film. And I'm a filmmaker. But in a song, in a three minute song, you can take someone on an entire emotional journey. The entire way from the entire story of heartbreak, loss, regaining it, all those, all these incredible stories that you go through in just, you know, three, three and a half minutes. That's amazing because the music is filling in some of your, some of your emotion. The, the music itself is an emotion. And to truncate that or to not take it seriously in your film, you're only hurting yourself. And I get really irritated with, especially after watching, uh, that teardown of Marvel symphonic universe, you know? Oh, right. Where they just like share music. Yeah, they with just, all the films. It's they, just boring. They take a temp track and that's where a lot of this starts to break down me off. where they take someone's, someone else's music. And for the sake of editing, you take a, a song or someone else's score and you insert it into your edit so that you have a rhythm to cut to. And then you send that temp track to your composer and the composer, composes based off that temp track and so you're just getting a a slightly different flavor yeah of the same thing you already had it's all cookie cutter yeah garbage i mean it it, that's why there's no emotion tied to those absolutely to to those things i mean maybe logan would be the only exception Mm -hmm. um but that is more the acting i feel like than the the uh, acting the world is completely different totally from any of the other films and and it's the bet. It's so yeah. good. It's, it's so much better amazing. than all the other yeah. all the other Marvel movies. Yep. When you're when you're scoring a film too, like you can have you can have an idea of what something's going to look like, but more so you need to know what it's supposed to feel like, right? As a mm-hmm. as a composer, as a as a um, when you're when you're writing a piece of music. You can always change lengths of things. You can always change what instruments you're going to use. You can, you know, you don't have to go track the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra, like <laughs> like before you have picture lock. You don't have to do that. You know, yeah. nowadays you can make everything MIDI. You can make everything instruments, and and then you go to print after you know the director says yes, this is the direction we want to go. And for this for this scene, then you can have the scene and lock it in. And, and absolutely, stuff. because give your give you're, your you're hiring this guy's yeah to create something. Let him create it. Yeah, like what the heck, man? I'm not gonna. I would be frustrated. And this is the whole studio system that would frustrate me because I'm sure there's directors like Danny Boyle who get all kinds of opportunities. He was offered Alien Four, and he turned it down because he didn't like the way the studio execs were probably going to be hounding him and enforcing their vision onto his film. And as a filmmaker, if you don't want someone enforcing your vision, their vision onto your film, why would you hamstring your composer by doing the same thing to them? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. At all. And so I love 
I love Danny Boyle's approach and pretty much always. I'm not saying every one of his films are great. I was really underwhelmed. Not by Steve Jobs. I think Steve Jobs is really good. But the one before that, gosh, uh, Trance, I mm. thought was yeah. okay. Yeah, It was his take on a thriller, and it just didn't – it wasn't really as interesting as I had hoped. But I appreciate him taking that risk. You know yeah, what? and, and um, just to get back on music for a second, I, mean, I, would, I would argue that, and I think you would agree, film is not even about the script. The script, you take the script, throw it out. It's about your the actor's interaction with either each other or the world they're in, and you put music to it, there, right? Or or even no music. It's really more about like like what can you tell through your face, right? To some extent, to yeah. Some, I mean, in a close up, yeah, yeah. That's all that. You have a world of emotion right at your fingertips. I mean, let's look at uh, like half of the those little those little Pixar <laughs> the stories yeah, that have shorts. no no you know yeah like the, the little shorts before some of their films that have no script or anything um, or at least no dialogue. I'll say, Wally is a great example. Mm-hmm. There's no dialogue in that film for the half the film, uh, and yet it tells such a great story and you're connected with this thing. Um, yeah, there's an old adage in filmmaking of show me, don't tell me because we're supposed to want yeah, yeah. our, and it's going to keep going back to not, you know, distrusting your audience, but you want people to be able to fill in blanks. And if you're constantly telling us what's happening, instead of letting us observe it through your intentional filmmaking, then we're not engaged. We're not asking questions and we don't really care what's happening. <laughs> yeah. It's probably one of the reasons why people like books yeah. more than movies. I, I liked the, the book was better than the movie. Sure. Because you were able to create that in your own mind. Yeah. You didn't have somebody telling you how, yeah. but anyway, Danny Boyle does a really good job in this film of, of not spelling it all out for mm-hmm. you, but you follow everything really easily. Yep. I feel, I agree. Um, I could definitely keep going, but let's go ahead and wrap this up. I have right. so many more notes. It's really ridiculous. Um, well, hit them. Okay. So you can always edit. Okay. Out. All right. I love the, uh, don't the sp- edit out me telling you that you can edit. This. Okay. <laughs> I love, I love the special effects. I think, uh, like all the practical things that we were talking about earlier start to really come to play. Searle is peeling his skin you know, and it's uh, maybe a comment to the degradation of his, you know, psyche. As a psych officer, um, he's degrading, and you can see it physically through the peeling of his skin. And it just gets worse and worse as the film goes on. I think that's a really great tactile element that could have been easy to just gloss over, but they took the time in to actually create the latex and the, the way to make that really eerie and, and creepy um, and realistic. Same thing with. Uh, it makes me shudder thinking about it, oh. but pinbacker yeah. when he rips his freaking skin off, uh, when Cassie rips his skin off or whoever, when she falls. Oh, yeah. Dude, that's so yeah. gross oh, God. and it's beautiful. <laughs> like I don't, and, and you get like a split second of it. Yeah. And just I, like a, a quarter second. <laughs> if that, 
It's just the beginning of it ripping off, and that's it. And then he's screaming. And I have to look away every time. It's so... I mean, I watch it kind of out of the corner of my eye. It's so gross. Uh, same thing with the frostbite, you know, on Mace's hand. Capping the coolant right, his blue skin. I don't know if that's makeup or if it's that cold. Because another behind-the-scenes thing that they talk about on the DVD is all the love uh, Chris Evans got for doing that scene. Because he was freezing. Like that... Fog that that's it's coming real, out of his mouth. Yeah. Real breath. Yeah, that's real breath. Oh, that's and so cool. that water was freezing, and he was coping like a man. <laughs> that's awesome. Well done. Sir. I mean, if I if I was acting like that scene, I'd want it to be freezing too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. like let's get this real. I'm not going to fake shake. No. no, give it to me. Let's yeah. do it. I completely agree with that. And Kappa when he falls down uh, in the spacesuit towards the end, as he's making his way to the exit. He falls down, and when he falls down in his suit, Danny Boyle has a couple of grips pin him down. And he's not really aware that he's being pinned down. And he's telling him to get up, and he's screaming at Killian Murphy, like, get up. (laughs) He's like, and he's just trying to stand up. So all that frustration, the yelling, the screaming, that was him just trying to stand up again. Dude, that's awesome. (laughs) Oh, I love hearing that stuff. I love hearing that behind the scenes stuff. Oh my God. Um, yeah, there's just tons of the the special effects and, and I love that they built the set. That's always going to be one of the great things about building your own set is the ability to build in the lighting. I felt like they built in a lot of the lighting with the exception of maybe the uh, earth room and the observatory because that the observatory is a green screen that they composite in the sun later on and they just light it so that it should be reflecting what you're seeing outside, especially just to talk briefly about the mercury passing in front of the sun. Mm. That scene is unbelievable. It's just beautiful, but they do a great job of lightly using the green screen where they need to uh, and matching it along with the uh, the heat waves that we talked about earlier, coupling it with all those sound effects for enhancement, right? The guitar strikes, you have all the static, there's all these power noises, and even at the end, so we have that when we meet the sun and throughout, especially when Killian Murphy meets the sun <laughs> at the end. Yeah, uh, It's very powerful and overwhelming. And they cut to the earth when the sunlight you know, finally reaches them eight minutes later. And... You still hear it. You can hear the power of the sun. It's much softer now, but it's the only sound cue that helps tie us in to what just happened. We're seeing it, but then we're, you know, orally reminded of where that came from and the power that's at play. Oh, I missed that. That's awesome. I think that's pretty cool. I also love the uh, editing wise. There's this really simple effect that they. Uh, Danny Boyle in the behind the scenes said they tested out, which was when they get to Icarus one, they insert one single frame of the crew. And because it's such a large contrast, even though it's only one frame, it sticks out. It like shocks your memory. Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering what that was. Those flashes. It's kind of creepy. You're like, there's a face, there's people, Uh, you know, they do it two or three times before they finally stumble upon the uh, the crew's picture and they uncover it and it's like, oh, that's what we were just looking at, the crew. And then, but they use it again towards the end whenever Kappa's starting to ask, 
who's the fifth crew member, we get a one frame flicker. Uh. And it's Pinbacker. We see a one, fl- one frame of Pinbacker in the observatory. And it's just a great thing they stumbled upon that they got to reuse in the precise way because it, because if you're going to reuse it, you need to reuse it properly within your film. Uh, you can't just start inserting it anywhere it feels fun. But they've established it. This is an Icarus One theme that we're going to be using. And so now that we're redressing an Icarus One crew member again, we're going to insert it once more. And so that's a really smart thing. The payload, when it's streaking into the sun, is... There's this shot, this wide shot that looks like a freaking painting. And I wouldn't be surprised if they referenced paintings. I don't think they did, but... What, the side shot of it? Yeah. Yes. And it's like all these beautiful, I don't know, streaks of the sun. It looks like some kind of Van Gogh thing. Like, it's just unbelievably beautiful. Yeah, I mean, they do so many simple visual effects to enhance instead of... Let's just do visual effects because even the uh, the ship was built based off the physical designs that they had built out. The VFX team, MPC, I think it's called, uh, out in the UK, said, okay, well, this is the physical construct. This is what they're doing. W- what does that look like from the outside? Oh, these rooms were all constructed. They were built in Earth, launched into space, and then connected in space. Well, practically speaking, what does that need to look like for that to happen? So they started backing their way out. So everything had a practical beginning. It was never, oh, let's just do it for the sake of interesting stuff. Let's just let's do it because it makes real world sense. And then because you are so well grounded in that, I don't mind when they go off 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 track. Right at the end, I mean, they kind of set it up. That the gravity of the sun, you know, is a wobbly, crazy, unpredictable thing. Uh, but we still kind of know, yeah, you're still being pulled in. There's still a directional quality. But I kind of let go of all that once Kevin Murphy is, you know, in between the explosion of his bomb and the sun itself. And he's having this moment, his last moment. And because they've grounded everything, I kind of forgive all these things. Yeah. I don't mind. I don't understand exactly how the bomb works. I I can let that go. Like to me I don't really I guess completely understand how the sun itself works. I think largely there's this thought experiment of could you pour enough water onto the sun to to douse it out? And you could not. And here's why. If you had enough water to cover the sun, that much water itself would become a sun. Because of how much uh, the density of it, the density of it begins the to weight. collapse mm-hmm. and form its own star, and so to me, that's when I think of stars. That's what, usually what I think of is a, it's it's mass. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of mass. Um, and so, but I don't. I'm sure they did some amazing homework with. They brought on a physicist to kind of check their p's and q's. But at the end of the day, they understand we also got to make a movie. Let's yeah, ground it, ground it, ground it, and now when we bend or sometimes break, it's not that bad because we've tried our hardest to be disciplined. Yeah. Suspension of disbelief in yeah, that regard. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, this, this movie makes you want to have a little bit of suspension of disbelief just to make sure like you want them to succeed. You want this to work. I mean, there, you wouldn't be watching the film if you didn't at the same time. Uh, so 
how it happens, you're not so worried about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I think the, uh, the one thing I really loved maybe most of this physically of this film was the, uh, the earth room itself. Like I, I want one of those. It's a light cube. It's just huge light cube. Yeah. And I don't think they actually built that light cube. I think it was mostly green screen and with a couple of soft boxes. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Well, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> Why not? Easy, right? right. We already have the technology. <laughs> Let's do it that way. Because if you're actually watching the lighting of that scene, there it's not completely honest. The they're still creating uh, what's called neg fill, negative fill, which is let's say I'm filming you, you're standing right in front of the camera, maybe you're looking slightly uh, slightly off centered and looking diagonally. So maybe you're looking across camera, not directly at the camera, but you turn 45 degrees to the left. Well, what I'm looking at now would be your right eye that's closest to the camera. And I don't want light pouring in there because now it feels fake. It feels like the light is coming from the camera and you're starting to indicate that you're in a movie. It's hurting the suspension of disbelief. So what they do is create negative fill and regular fill is if there's a shadow, you take a big white bounce board and reflect light to fill in those shadows. So negative fill is the exact opposite. You're cutting off light to create shadow, to create, you know, nothingness, you know, in, in one sense. Yeah. And so what they do is use a big black sheet of material, cloth, silk, what have you, of various types, depending on what kind of fill you want. Uh, usually matted is best because you don't want it reflective. You want it, you know, to not bounce. And so, and that, and that creates shadow on your face and which in turn creates depth to the image because now your face has more dimension. And so in that, in that earth cube or the, uh, the earth room, their little light cube, they're still creating this negative fill in that room, even though it's completely composed of light. (laughs) There shouldn't be any negative. There shouldn't be any negative fill. Um, and so I, that's why I feel pretty confident that it wasn't an actual room that they built, which they absolutely fooled me. Um, if, if that is the case and maybe it's not, maybe they built it and used it only for a handful of shots. It didn't look like a very expensive thing to build. Um, out of everything else that they built. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they could throw together <laughs> yeah. a couple thousand dollar little, <laughs> little light room. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, they do all these simple physical things that, that flesh the world out to help you believe they're in space. Mm-hmm. They're isolated. Not only, with the way they interact, but you see so much of the interior that you begin to feel like, okay, this is a big ship, but we've been in this room enough. You know, can he get to the end of the hall fast enough? Because we are also familiar with the length of the ship. The whole film is built towards helping you understand spatially what's happening, their distance to the sun, their distance from one end to the other of the ship and their distance from the earth. Their distance from the earth, yeah, because yeah. at a certain point they can't even get messages back home. Mm-hmm. And so it's such a great, I think, case study of understanding filmmaking if you take the time to actually start to break down each element apart, you know. So so this was your favorite movie. Yeah. And it's not anymore. So what would you what would you get it give it out of ten? Ooh. An hour and ten minutes into our 
yeah into our podcast say that an hour and ten yeah <laughs> hour and a half closer yeah. um i think i would probably give it that's tough i'm gonna say a 10 for me wow all right it's got good replay value i don't think it's a perfect film which means it probably shouldn't be a 10 but yeah in my heart i still love it to death and i don't think there's anything i would do to improve it which okay by deduction might make it you know my perfect film but i don't think it's universally a perfect film okay cool yeah what about you um i think i think that i would give it an eight i think i would give it an eight nice um I mean, there are a couple of CGI moments where I'm I'm taken out of it just a little bit. Mm. Um, nothing big, you know, and it goes away. And then the next piece of CGI is fantastic. So it's like they're just little small things. I feel like there are a couple of moments that, and I couldn't tell you what they are now. I need to watch it for a third time. Um, but I think there are a couple of moments that uh, don't quite hit home for me. Um, they're not big ones. The big ones all hit home for me pretty pretty well, but just little little small things. I mean, I feel like in this in this movie, one of the great things about what Danny Boyle does is that it feels like it's full of those important moments the entire time, but he still gives the really important moments the time to breathe, like you said. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I think a solid eight maybe eight and a half and i'm pretty stingy i'm pretty stingy you really know so um which still makes it a fantastic film that i would recommend to anybody Uh, because sci-fi is my favorite um just there's nothing nothing more i feel like this the sci-fi film genre has moved mankind forward more than almost anything else i mean you know give someone a camera some money and an idea and he'll tell you what the future is going to be like. And so it probably good. will be that way. I mean, look at back to the future too. The Cubs won the series. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest people, you called know, their shot. boom, called it. <laughs> and it's on that point about the different sci-fi makes. I was watching a documentary earlier today about Tesla and some of his ideas about basically laser technology or uh, electrical Mm -hmm. technology specifically being a destructive energy and force and using it as a weapon. And I think it was the inspiration for the death star, which then became the inspiration for Reagan's quest to, to effectively build something, you know, uh, to stop ICBMs um, in the air. Oh, wow. And so Tesla may have had the idea but it was science fiction that really brought it to the forefront. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like that's, you start diving into what, what is the future going to look like? Okay. Maybe that's what the future will be. Uh, you know, it, that inspires other people. It's, it's it anyway. So I would give it an eight. Awesome. Solid eight, yeah. Awesome. Um, so my recommendation of the week is it's actually an unrecommendation. <laughs> oh, this is I love the twist. I love it. What? I finished reading this morning. Oh my gosh. <laughs> David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. Oh yeah. And I've never been more disappointed. You I don't know how I've been hearing about this this book for weeks. 
<laughs> just hearing you complain oh. constantly about this book and I'm just like, just stop reading it then. Just stop. But you are the kind of person that will not stop something until you finish it. This is correct. Even if you, even if you hate it. I hated it. And it's not that there's nothing enjoyable within the book itself. It's, it's so tedious that anything you could consider reward isn't rewarding enough. And there's certainly nothing. I consider it just tedious without reward. And, and it would be like, okay, in order to lose one pound, I have to not eat for a month. And it's like, okay, yeah, you got a result. Was it really <laughs> worth that effort? <laughs> Oh, that's a, that's really awesome. It just that's, was not. Okay. <laughs> and it's such a big deal to everyone. And I get it. If you're still going to read it, you're going to read it. But God be with you. Yeah. <laughs> because he overwrites the ever-living crap out of this book. And yeah. it feels, uh, I mean, masturbatory. Oh, okay. Yeah. Honestly, it really does. It's, okay. It's that bad to me. It's so pretentious and... Uh, Ir- ir- yeah, I would not have the patience to. <laughs> I, I wouldn't stand ten pages on that. Uh, in that, yeah, wow. good on you, man. Thanks, okay, man. yeah, but it's it's under my belt, and I can participate in those pretentious conversations to basically <laughs> fart on the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Um, <laughs> What's your recommend? <laughs> my recommend. I can't follow that. How am I supposed to follow that? <laughs> All right. My recommendation is Ozark on Netflix. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually, I, I didn't watch it for several weeks when it came out because I just thought, Oh, it's an, it's another version of breaking bad, which I loved. I, I loved that, but I didn't want another one. Uh, it, it was an exhausting show to watch. Uh, and I didn't want, I just, I didn't want that tension you know, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, Oh, I know this was, it's done really well. Jason Bateman is awesome yeah. in it. I mean, from the first episode, it had me be, you know, I've, I, I've, I'm a, I mean, I'm a fan of Jason Bateman, but I don't, I'm not like crazy about him. You know, everything he does has this, this air of like sarcasm. It almost feels like everything he's saying is, little rye. Yeah. And, and, and com- comedic, yeah, you know, like, yeah. so I was thinking, Oh, you know, you got a comedian or like a co- co- comedic actor doing a serious role. You know, I don't know if it can be done as well as it was done in breaking bad. Uh, but man, he does it, he nails it. And there's plenty of sarcastic remarks that he <laughs> makes in it that land completely. Um, he directs the first episode and I think a few others, uh, he, he produces all of them. Um, so yeah, it just, it, the acting is really great. The writing is, is great. And a lot of stuff happens where you're like, Oh my gosh, I, I did not see that coming. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a really good, uh, waste of 10 hours of your life, um, <laughs> that you'll enjoy. Heck yeah. And then when you'll be done with the, the season and you'll be like, Oh man, now I gotta wait another year for the next one. Yeah. Um, so, and I always love his slash hate that feeling. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. I'll co-sign that. Okay. Um, don't forget to subscribe and 
Drop us a line at thepestlepodcast.com. You can see the show notes of this episode by going to thepestlepodcast.com slash sunshine. A lot of shh stuff going on in there. Um, but also let us know, you know your thoughts on the film or if there's a film you want us to tackle. All right, so we're going to leave you with the quote of the day. Now, uh, Wes found this one, and this is, this is uh, I really like it a lot. It's uh, Lars von Trier. And it's on his controversial film, Antichrist. Truthfully, I can only say I was driven to make the film, that these images came to me and I did not question them. My only defense is, forgive me, for I know not what I do. I am the wrong person to ask what the film means or why it is as it is. It is a bit like asking the chicken about the chicken soup. I love that. It's, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm with him till the end and I'm uh it's such an honest way of of saying I'm just going to create something that's mm-hmm. in my head. Um as a musician, you know, like I I've had people come up to me and say where did you get the insp- like where did that come from? I bet. Like where you know that line or that that you know uh that chord structure or whatever usually it's about lyrics but and it a lot of times it's also just about an entire song and you know i usually have you know tried to say oh well i was thinking about this when i did this or wrote that or this happened to me in my life or whatever but honestly you know this is more of a truthful statement i feel like than than anything that i gave anybody because it's really just it just came to me in some way you know or whatever and it's it's ballsy of him to even make this thing absolutely you know like say i have all this craziness in my head and i'm gonna get it out and spend other people's money to do it right you know what i mean yeah Yeah. and then not give uh, a crap about what people are going to think of me it doesn't mean that i'm satan it just means this is going on it's this kind of stuff goes on in everyone's heads whether they admit or not stuff pops up and you cannot control it the only thing you can control is your reaction to it Mm -hmm. do you either embrace it or do you push it away um uh, or do you not necessarily do either and you just kind of like dig a little bit deeper into what that is, what that meaning is, why it's there and why maybe it either it keeps coming back or, or, um, has affected you in that way. That's so, a really good point. And I can imagine, especially as a songwriter that it happens way more often than probably me with a script because it's, it is, it's so you're so in your head, you're so emoting and sometimes words just connect with the feeling and you don't necessarily have a good explanation because it's not a songwriting isn't always and I would maybe even for me it was never like a very map like effort screenwriting usually is usually you go in with an idea of exactly what you're trying to accomplish and you work your way to accomplish that thing songwriting is a discovery man and it's so much more the chicken in the chicken soup because it's like yeah i can maybe rewind and back my way out of in, into an answer and be like i think this is where that came from but it's not necessarily 
why, you know, if you were to ask me before you write the song, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to yeah. be able to give no. you anything. Right, nothing, right. <laughs> and yeah. I love that. But the fact that he had, like, this is a script. That's incredible. Um, because the movie, I was confused. And it, after I watched this film, Andy Christ, I was just kind of beside myself. I'm like, what did I just watch? I wasn't really clear. And I had all these thoughts, but they were really disconnected. And so I just started Googling and I can't find the article. I was looking for it, but I was looking for an article that where he basically says that he was writing this uh, effectively as a stream of conscious uh, thing event where he would wake up in the middle of the night, write his ideas down and kind of go back to sleep. And that was how he wrote. Uh, maybe it was his dreams he was writing specifically. I don't know. Maybe I dreamt all that up or I'm <laughs> picking the wrong movie. I don't know. But or it's one o'clock in the morning and, <laughs> yeah. and we're recording this podcast for two hours. <laughs> I hope everyone this I think this has been like one of my favorite episodes. Okay, good. So many topics kind of came out of nowhere and then I love that. I'm okay. getting I'm trying to get better at this whole thing because I come in with just this ungodlike number of notes sometimes. <laughs> and but that's your thing. Like, you know, you're technical. It's okay. It is, but I also it feels better when it's naturally guided. And you've That's had you got me. so many great yeah, thoughts that I've come not I don't take notes, bro. <laughs> I, I, too much school. I'm done. No notes. I'm off the cuff, man. If I don't have an answer for you, I don't have an answer for you. Houseway? You ain't got the answers? <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, guys. I'm so tired. <laughs> this is Wes. This is Todd. Go watch some movies, guys. Mm-hmm.